Welcome to the latest edition of Talking About Methods. Today I'm really delighted to be talking to Agnieszka Kubal, who's a lecturer in sociology at UCL, where amongst other things she teaches methodology. She's an interdisciplinary socio-legal migration and human rights scholar with an area studies interest in Central Eastern Europe and Russia. Agnieszka is the author of two monographs and has recently been awarded a prestigious ERC starter grant. Welcome to the programme, Agnieszka, and I wonder if I could just get the ball rolling by asking you to tell our audience about the sort of socio-legal research you do. Uh, thank you very much, Linda, and thank you very much for having me. My research is about uh, how people build a relationship with the law. So it's about how the law works in action. And the particular context in which I'm interested in that relationship is uh, in migration. That is, uh, when migrants arrive in a new country, what do they do with the legal system that they encounter there? Do they follow the law? Do they ignore the law? Do they want to keep a low profile? from the law or not necessarily follow it altogether? What are the reasons? I mean, this is just a, a plethora of different actions that they might take, but I'm also interested in their attitudes that sort of, in their own words, explain their behaviors and why. And I started uh, this research looking at Polish migrants in the United Kingdom. That was my defil at the center. And it was in a particular time that is when the EU free movement laws were suspended. That is, Poland has just joined the European Union. And by the way of derogation from the treaty, older members of the European Union were allowed to sort of suspend the provisions on free movement and instead put in place their own laws that would regulate, for instance, labor recruitment and access to welfare benefits. And the UK was one of those countries that even though it opened its labor market, it did so for nine years on its own national law, not the EU law. For instance, in opposition to Sweden, Sweden immediately opened the labor market, including on the EU law on free movement. And I thought, you know, I just do this research and it's just going to, after the transition period was suspended, that it's just going to have like an archival quality. But now we are in a very similar situation again, because the UK is not about to implement the EU free movement, but has just left it, <laughs> has left it and put in place its own rules again. So it's sort of like a, on the other side of the mirror to see how migrants now react to Eastern European migrants. But after that, I did research on um, return migrants in Ukraine, uh, return migrants from the UK, Netherlands, Portugal and Norway. That were the four countries that were part of the project that I was working on during my postdoc. And I looked at the sort of transfers that migrants, uh, return migrants bring with them from home in the area of legal consciousness. So looking at legal consciousness as a form of social remittance, for example. And after that, I actually went to Russia to do the project. Russia is the second largest destination for migrants globally. And I was interested in how the people who migrate to Russia build a relationship with the law in an environment that is known for human rights abuses, that is known for corruption, that is known for uh, the existence of telephone law, for instance. So how do the people stand for their rights? That is where the method of shadowing, uh, when I first decided to apply it. Thank you. There's so much about what you've said that's really, really interesting, but I'm going to make you focus today on methodology. And I know that in recent years, you've been shadowing lawyers. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what motivated the use of that particular method, and why you decided to use it in the research project. 
So that is from the project in Russia that I was talking about. It resulted in the book Immigration and Refugee Law in Russia with Cambridge University Press in 2019. And that was part of my British Academy postdoctoral project. What uh, motivated me to do that is that I really wanted to find out what is the role of lawyers as the mediators of migrants' relationship with law. We know that a lot of the migrants who are in Russia come from the former Soviet Union countries of Central Asia. However, because these are de jure independent countries since the collapse of the Soviet Union, they have also undergone a significant changes in the education system, which means that the migrants who arrive now, they don't necessarily speak Russian, which again makes the interaction with the legal system all that more difficult. At the same time, Russia is a big international player. I mean, we've just heard about the Russian army entering the eastern Ukraine. At the time when I was in Russia, it was the first part of that crisis. It was uh, when Russia invaded Crimea and annexed Crimea. And it was the first part of the fights uh, in now declared independent by Putin, the eastern territories of Luhansk and Donbass. And that resulted in 2014, is when I was in Russia, in mass migration, but also refugee movement, not only to the West, but also to Russia. So we also had we had a huge influx of Eastern Ukrainian refugees in Russia around that time. And not forgetting, Russia is also a big political player, a military player in the Middle East. And it was, I think, uh, already a second year of the war in Syria. So we had also a number of Syrian refugees coming to Russia around the time of my fieldwork. So these people, with the exception, I would say, of the Ukrainian refugees, needed a legal help in order to access any form of either ask, if to ask for either form of international protection in Russia or for regularizing their stay. And this is why I decided to place myself within a a particular legal NGO in Russia, in Moscow, which looks after those migrants and refugees, which helps them access the uh, refugee status. And uh, I opened my book with this sort of uh, vignette when I first uh, came to the uh, the NGO and there was uh, a reception that was staffed by a Syrian uh, refugee, Muiz, who spoke perfect Russian, uh, better than mine, actually. He welcomed me and I asked her, well, I have been in correspondence with your chairperson and she allowed me to come and observe the work that the lawyers do here. And he told me, okay, so just go inside and then there's this door and behind the door are the lawyers consulting the migrant and refugee clients. And I just joined the queue to that office. I didn't look like a typical migrant seeking asylum. Strange. (laughs) And the, the vice chairwoman of the NGO, she just saw me and she came to me and said, why are you waiting, silly? just knock and enter she took me by the arm she was quite forceful she took me by the arm she knocked up to the lawyer's office and told me she will come here and she will be sitting here and she opened the door and and it's thanks to Yelena Yurovna that I sort of started my first day of shadowing in the office of the lawyers and it was a really small office 
with, I think, four desks, and three of them were occupied by lawyers who were consulting clients. And it was quite intrusive at the beginning. So I was just sitting in one corner. And I was at, at that time, I was just the first day I was just observing, I wouldn't sort of feel it was particularly conducive to that sort of environment in which I was just put in that room without much introduction to really uh, take notes. So I was just sitting and observing and I took my notes afterwards. But later on, once I got to know the lawyers, once I received consent, I sort of managed to make myself less useless. So I was uh, helping them photocopy different documents, I was maybe even doing a spot of translating when we had, for instance, uh, sub-Saharan African uh, migrants asking for a refugee in Russia who, for instance, would speak only English. But the lawyers, they spoke English as well, so they, they really didn't need my help in that sense. So this is how sort of my experience and my adventure with shadowing began. That's really interesting background, Agnieszka. And I wonder if I could ask you why you think that shadowing is different from a regular ethnographic study, which also involves obviously a lot of observation and following people around. I think there is uh, one or I would say two, though I'm not really so convinced about this, uh, differences. There are two differences. For instance, the article by Isabel Bartkovek-Teron and Jennifer robin Sapi. They talk about two additional steps that distinguish shadowing from just observation. And they focus particularly on the aspect of what I would call ad hoc unstructured interviewing that happened alongside shadowing. So the researcher is sort of not timid or not feels that it's basically asks questions as they go along and ask questions, not only focusing about what sort of thing you're doing, but why you are doing it. So asks for motivations, asks for the participants evaluation of different actions. What is happening? Why is this happening? Why is it happening now? And the second thing is they talk about reflexivity. But here, again, I'm not so orthodox about this because reflexivity is such an important part of any type of ethnographic qualitative method. So here I am a little bit more critical to that second thing that apparently is so special in shadowing. But uh, following from the first article, I think, ever written by Shadowing by Sheen at MacDonald, I would say the appeal of that method is because it started as something very practical. I think it started from a research on factory foremans in 1950s and uh, following particular uh, members on the factory floor, the supervisors, and asking them questions about their every minute detail of their everyday working life. And uh, that then sort of positioned the development of shadowing within a very sort of organizational research or sort of a research that focused on the work culture and work practices. And because my focus in Russia was uh, really on the lawyers as the interpreters of the legal environment towards the migrants, it's really important part of the puzzle of how that relationship with the legal system is being formed. I sort of borrowed that method thinking that it could work well. But also I think that the interesting thing in that method is that it it hasn't only been limited to work culture and uh, institutional ethnography setting, but it also... There's very interesting research 
uh, following the shadowing techniques of uh, nurses in the First Nations if on of rural Canada, the, the northern Canada, where a researcher was following the community nurses in that environment, which is not sort of limited to a particular organization because they're community nurses. So they would have like one place where they sit and then they would be going to different places. So I think it's the appeal of doing something that is very practical, almost you know, apprentice-based, because that's how it sort of developed this ethos of on-the-job training. So you are not afraid of asking questions because you want to understand something for yourself, but you also want to sort of get it explained to understand it from the perspective, from someone else's point of view. It occurs to me that there are sort of two other aspects of shadowing as well, which distinguish it. I mean, first of all, presumably you are looking at the world from the perspective of one person. Um, So you're observing and following their engagements with other people, but you're always following that one person, which probably might make it a little bit different from, from ethnographic research, where you might be understanding the dynamics of relationships or communities. And also it seems to me you're not dependent on place. So an awful lot of ethnography in a socio-legal context has gone on, for instance, in court, where the court is the world that you're looking at. Whereas I presume with your shadowing, you're not dependent on place in quite the same way, that there's quite a lot of movement with shadowing. If you're following lawyers to appointments outside of the building or interactions with other lawyers in other firms, is, is that fair? That's absolutely fair. The court was only one setting when the shadowing would take place. A lot of that method would, for instance, cover uh, waiting in the corridor (laughs) to the courtroom or being on the bus or uh, one of the researchers, Bart Johnson, who was writing about the ethics, he said he actually had to drive his research participants to different meetings and that's how he got to get his data. So that legal aid NGO in that first room that I described at the beginning was just one setting where the shadowing would take place and in that sense it would be dispersed all over Moscow from different courtrooms, from different means of public transport to a cafe, because of course you need to have lunch after, I mean, at some point. So I would follow and shadow my lawyers there as well. I didn't mention the first aspect, which you alluded to, Linda, that is it focuses on the actions of just one person. Because uh, I was there, I was indeed shadowing one lawyer at a particular time, but I was shadowing ultimately a group of them. Yes, so one lawyer at a particular time, but once, for instance, she had a day off, and I came to the office, I would follow somebody else. So in that sense, I could sort of get the perspective on things from a various uh, various different lawyers that were working for that organization, yet indeed one lawyer usually at the same time. Great. And could you tell us a little bit more about what you needed to organize before you began the shadowing part of your research? Arranging the place that would agree to host me uh, was the first thing. And uh, in Russia, it's not difficult to come across that organization because whoever works with migrants and refugees, they would know of that particular legal aid NGO. It's a chairwoman. Is quite, she's quite a charismatic person, I would say. She was, I think, nine times nominee to the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, once she lost to Barack Obama in 2009, even though I think completely unfairly. So people know of her. She's also very approachable. 
up to now, even though I haven't been volunteering and shadowing for them for the last uh, nearly eight years, she would still send me birthday wishes on my Facebook. So you can see how approachable she is, even though her standing is uh, in the field of migration law and human rights law in Russia. Is, I mean, you can't get better than that, I suppose, in terms of access. Then I was not that focusing on interviewing or, or shadowing her because her role as the head of the organization is slightly different to what is the, the everyday lawyers do in that organization. So I was much more interested in the everyday lawyers. But since I had her sort of imprimatur and agreement, the lawyers would agree. And I think that is, that's why I shared with you the third article by Bart Johnson about the ethical issues in shadowing. Because that really demonstrates, um, answering your question, apart from access, ethics would be the second thing, big thing to look at. Because this is quite an intrusive way of conducting research, of gathering data. Because A, uh, you follow one person at a particular time and then you ask them a lot of questions. You may get to annoy them. But also through that person as their shadow, you get into interactions with other people. Bart Johnson asked this question, does it mean that, you know, in every meeting that, that the person I shadow goes to, does it mean that I have to put for everyone the ethics form and the informed consent? What if the person I shadow finds it quite intrusive and says, okay, you, you can gather this later, but I need to get on with the meeting or, you know, I need to get on with the talk to, to, to my clients. So I had to navigate quite a thin line. I would never say I'm doing a covered observation. Absolutely not. But I was at points where I could not get informed consent from all the members of a particular interaction. And does it mean that if I had the consent form of the person whom I was shadowing, was this enough? It brings a lot of those ethical conundrums, which are quite undiscussed yet in this type of shadowing research. Another thing is, another reason why I linked the Bar Johnson article, because that's something I had as well, is the sort of inapplicability of the formal ethics approval processes versus the thing you happen to come across in the field. For example, I said in my ethics application that I will follow X number of lawyers. And then the whole uh, discussion, my back and forth with the ethics committee was, uh, is it really a representative sampling? And that's not the question you are particularly interested when you do quantitative research. You're not interested in being representative because qualitative research has its own criteria of rigor and just borrowing the words or the benchmarks from quantitative research is like joining a race, which you know you're going to lose because these are not the same criteria of, research, uh, criteria of rigor. Of course, I, I was focusing in my response on the fact that, you know, I'm going for saturation, I'm going for theoretical saturation, I'm going for empirical saturation. And yet the whole back and forth between the committee was what you're going to do if your sample is not representative, etc. So that was a bit my frustration. But in, when I was actually in the field, I encountered this other issues of ethics, um, shadowing a particular lawyer, but what about others who are part of that conversation? What about the others who are part of the different meetings that the lawyers go to? What about the court hearings? I'm coming in as an assistant volunteer. That's why I used initially the, the word volunteer of that NGO, that I'm coming as the assistant of the lawyer. 
and they know my role as the researcher. The judge will not know it. Shall I ask the judge for ethical consent, for informed consent to take part in the study? Or would that then put my lawyer in a slightly disadvantaged position? Can you give us some practical indications of other things that you might have to prepare for? I mean, how do you dress? Did you make an effort to dress as like the lawyers as possible? Or does that not matter to you? And did you have a notebook with you? Were you able to take notes as you were walking around? Or did you rush off to the ladies' toilet to fill in a notepad with observations or do it later on? I'm interested in the sort of practicalities as well. Sorry, I just got stuck on this ethics because it was really at the back of my head. But yes, no, I was dressed in my normal. The lawyers were also dressed. I wouldn't say they were dressed as corporate lawyers. It's another study to be written about the dress code of lawyers who work for NGOs. I was recently interviewing somebody in Poland who is a human rights lawyer working for a particular NGO standing for the rights of the LGBT plus population. And she told me when we were leaving that she's going on holiday. And I said, well, somewhere abroad. And she looked at me, I'm a lawyer for an NGO. Obviously, I'm going on holidays in Poland because I don't have the money to go abroad. And it was just such a like, duh moment. But it sort of, it is uh, yeah showing how out of touch I am. But yeah, that's something I would admit. But that sort of illustrates also that the issue of a dress code was much less prominent. I wouldn't be that much different uh, from the lawyers because they, they dressed in, I think, smart casual. That would be it. Another thing, though, it what distinguished me from them was that I had this notebook. And that notebook was quite often uh, where I was taking my notes. I think follow the uh, Shinnett McDonald article, she talks about really intense note-taking amounting between 8,000 to 10,000 words per day, but writing down every detail that is unfolding in front of you. And that sort of distinguished me from all the other people that were present in that room, either social workers or the lawyers, to the point that one lawyer, there was one situation when one lawyer was interviewing her clients and I was present. And when she asked me to photocopy something, I would photocopy and then I would just sit down and uh, write my notes. And when the lawyer left to the toilet and I was left with the client, they asked me, am I the supervisor? <laughs> I said, no, 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 I'm not the supervisor of anything. I am learning. This is something that helps me to learn what is the job that the lawyers are doing. And that's, yeah, that's another sort of functional reason for shadowing research. Could I ask you what insights you think it added to the project that wouldn't have been possible if you'd used other methods? What does shadowing bring? So I was considering it could be just a place-based ethnography. So I would be based in the legal aid NGO and move from room to room and observe what is happening there. But that was not the thing I wanted to study. I wanted to study how the lawyers translate the legal environment for the migrants and the refugees. And that translation does not happen solely in that legal aid NGO. It's taken outside because it happens in courts. It happens uh, during uh, meetings with representatives of different bodies that advise the government of, on Russia on the migration policy, for instance. It happens in cafes when the lawyers meet their clients. It happens on the way to the court when the lawyers addresses I mean, takes phone calls, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what it, what it added is 
this additional element of mobility, which is quite ironic because I was studying migrants and I had to become quite mobile in that process inside Moscow. So it added the element of mobility, but I would also say it added this focus on, it gave me the ability to ask questions in the spur of the moment, which I think, again, if I was doing a more place-based ethnography within that NGO, I would be a more passive observer in the different rooms, following the different functions of the NGO. So let's say the social care, the material help to the migrants and refugees, and then the, the legal advice, that would be just one of the three. Because I was so intensely focused on the lawyers and so intensely intertwined with what the lawyers were doing, by, I would say, second week, they wouldn't mind me interrupting with questions. And then that sort of enabled me more in-depth picture of what is unfolding, including their motivations for doing their work, why they do it, and also what they share with me, what they want to share with me. So a bit more, I would say, active than just uh, place-based ethnography, to the point that there was one particular, I mean, what would illustrate it, for instance, there was just one day when the lawyers whom I was shadowing, she received a file on her desk. And she was asked to take a case of uh, two Syrians and one Palestinian who were detained in a place three hours by train from Russia, from Moscow, three hours by train from Moscow. They were detained there for working in an undocumented way, even though two of them were from Syria, one of them was Palestinian. So the idea was that they probably were in Russia to seek asylum, but they fell through the cracks of the bureaucracy. But it was already when the low-level immigration court decided that they have violated the Russian immigration law because they were working in an undocumented way. So the lawyer had one chance at appeal. I asked her if I could go with her to appeal. We looked at the file. We went together on that train, three hours. So we had to, the appeal was, I think, at 10 a.m. So we had to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning, take the train, get there. Then we went together with our interpreter. We had that three hour on the train. Then there was quite a lot of waiting time for the appeal to start. Then there was appeal, which was unsuccessful. And on the way back, we were basically, the, the moods were down completely of the lawyer and the interpreter because they knew that the next step would be that these men will be detained. If not, the, the men will be deported to Syria where, where there's war. That was 2014, so there were ongoing military action there. Indiscriminate violence against civilians. The uh, sort of slightly better case scenario was that they would be detained indefinitely because they couldn't be deported to Syria. And then we were thinking what to do, what to do, like, how about the European Court of Human Rights? How about we apply? How about we just go for it? And the next day we met in the office and me drawing on the purely theoretical knowledge that I had and she drawing on practical knowledge her colleagues had, we worked together on writing to the European Court of Human Rights asking for Rule 39 of the Rules of the Court, that is, stay there any legal proceedings against these men in Russia until the case before the European Court of Human Rights will be heard. And that case we appealed on Article 3, Prohibition on Inhuman and Degrading Treatment in case of the return, and Article 2, Right to life also in case of their return 
So that was the fact that I knew the lawyer well through shadowing. I knew what she was thinking, helped me to get a bit more active role in that research in the sense that I co-drafted with her the Rule 39 of the Rules of the Court. And later, on the basis of that, I mean, the court responded uh, in 24 hours, and it was the first Rule 39 interim that was received in Russia with regard to Syrian refugees. So all the lawyers in the office were super happy and they were super proud. But again, I wouldn't be able to have that relationship if it wasn't for the method of shadowing. Thank you so much. Um, You've already told us about quite a few of the problems that you experienced uh, while doing shadowing, the ethical dilemmas, etc. I wonder if I could just ask you one final question, which is what advice would you give a younger self about doing this sort of research in the future? The first thing would be to be a bit more confident. I think the first vignette, which I mentioned, me potentially waiting in the waiting room until the whole working day is over because I didn't have the guts and the courage in me to knock on the room of the lawyers and ask, can I please come and observe what you're doing? I didn't have that. So I would definitely say this is a method that makes you to be a bit more courageous. That's why I think it's not for everybody. That's why I think some people retreat to observation because that is much less intrusive method that requires you much less to be out there and to be outspoken. And especially if you're doing research in a language which is not your language, yeah, which is your second language and which you had to learn on the side for that particular study. So the one advice I would have to my younger self would be, yes, be a bit more courageous. Don't be afraid to knock on the doors. Because once I got to know the lawyers, once there was this sort of rapport with us, I realized the real benefits of that method. The fact, you know, I could pick up a phone and call them, that I could go to different courts with them, that this method afforded access that I would need to negotiate at every point in time. While because I was already shadowing one person, my access was sort of implicit in what they were doing. So this is not a method for people who are a bit shy you need to be a little bit out there but it gets easier as you go along and I think that the story I told about the train and shadowing the lawyer to that hearing and then by the time we really knew each other well that we sort of supported each other in writing that really important uh, application for the rule 39 of the rules of the court and pushing that application through the different levels all the way to the European Court of Human Rights that would not be possible if the research was not preceded by the in-depth understanding of one another which happened through the shadowing method. That's great. Thank you so much, Agnieszka. And you've already walked us through um, your choices of uh, articles to read as you've been talking. So thanks so much. Just left for me to say um, what an enjoyable podcast it's been. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please visit frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk to find a list of the publications that have been referred to in this podcast and a reference to a piece of work from our expert that you might also want to read. You can also find other podcasts and reading lists on that page. We hope that you've enjoyed this interview and that you'll listen to the other podcasts in our series. This is an ongoing project, so if you have an idea for a new podcast, just get in touch. Thank you.